0: So if you have a Bible and you want to open it somewhere, you can open it to 1 Corinthians. We are in a series right now called Family on Mission, and we're talking about the mission of our church. We're taking a moment this fall to stop and just talk for a few weeks about the mission that God has given, OCEC specifically. And um, our mission as a church, we kind of outlined what that was last week, and it's this. Our mission as a church is to build a community to reach a community. What that means is that we're people who find life in Jesus and we build community around that life in Jesus because scripture is very clear. We're not supposed to follow Jesus on our own. We're not supposed to do it as a a solo thing. We're supposed to be in community of people who also do it. That's how we live out the Christian life in a healthy way. So we're building a community here, and that community is built on the fact that life is found in Jesus and then we we desire to use that community that we built to reach our community outside the walls of our church with that very same message that life is only found in Jesus and what we recognize is that we live in a world that is that is really hurting for community that is really living in isolation that this has become like an epidemic in our world that people are isolated and alone and need this and so what better way uh, just like what the early church did than for us to actually use the community that we built here as a church as a way of reaching out not necessarily to have that community be all about reaching in and taking care of ourselves. So that's our mission. So what we're gonna talk about these next few weeks, these next three weeks, starting with this week, is the values that we have as a church. Values are like principles or things that shape um, the way that you do a certain thing. So like your family had values when you were growing up, um, whether you knew it at the time or not. And um, if you liked... Well, well, you were shaped by those values whether you wanted to be or not. I'll say that. Now, for some, you're aware of what those values were. You liked growing up in your home or in your family, and so you actually maybe want to live out and pass on those values as you build a family at some point one day. But a family is like a principle or a priority or something that kind of helps you dictate how you're going to go about doing what you're supposed to be doing. The value that I want to talk about first, that we're going to talk about this morning, this, this week here, this Sunday, in our message, is this. It is that we are centered on the gospel. So as a church, the way that we fulfill the mission that God has given us is first and foremost, step one, is that we're a people who are centered around and centered and built on the gospel, okay, whatever that thing is, the gospel, Okay? You could even just say our first value is the gospel. So what I want to talk about this morning, real briefly about this, is first of all, what is the gospel? Second of all, who needs the gospel? And third, why they need the gospel. What is the gospel, who needs the gospel, and why we need the gospel? I want to read to you um, a, uh, uh, the first couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is in the NIV because I like to change translations constantly just to keep you guys confused. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And we're going to look at a few verses here, but we're going to start with the first two. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. I'm going to read that one more time. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, a group of Christians, people who have received the gospel, he says, that they are to, uh, he's bringing them back to it. He's bringing them back to this message of the gospel. And the way he describes the gospel is he says, it's something that you received in the past in which you stand today and by which you are going to be saved, are being saved in an ongoing way, moving into the future. So he's saying there's a past, a present, and a future need for the gospel in our lives. This is why, as a church, we must be built upon it. Because Paul says... Um, And we read a lot of other places in the Bible that we're going to keep needing to go back to the gospel again and again. Well, what is it? What do we mean when we talk about the gospel, right? What is the gospel? I was talking this last week with my mom. Uh, It was her birthday, and I'm a good son, so I called her on her birthday. And um, she was at my sister's house and she said, "Um, your dad and I have decided that we're going to move down to your sister's and um, we're going to buy a house down here where they live. They live a few hours away from my mom and dad, which I was happy about because we were hoping that they would kind of go one way or the other and be with one of us. And so she said, I'm moving down to your sister's and uh, I kind of sealed the deal on that decision this weekend because I'm having some real problems with with one of my neighbors. And I was like, oh no, mom, what, what's going on? And she said, um, I was over at my neighbor's house on Friday and I was, uh, I was watering her plants in her backyard. Um, my mom is like a great neighbor to have. Like you want my mom to be your neighbor. She's so nice, she's so sweet, she's so kind and she will water your plants when you're gone. So she was in her neighbor's backyard watering their plants. She said, I was watering their plants when I looked up on top of the fence in between their yard and our yard and I realized something. I realized that on top of their fence was a bunch of tax strips. There were tax strips all along the top of their fence, and I realized that, that those tax strips were there. They put those tax strips there to keep our cats from going into their yard. That one of our cats' paw was bleeding about a week ago, and I didn't know what it was from. And now I know that they put those tax strips up to hurt our cats. She said, Eddie, do you know, because she calls me Eddie, Eddie, do you know that a tack strip in a cat's paw is like a seven-inch nail through a human's foot? I said, no, Mom, I did not know that. Now, here's something you need to know about my mom, apart from the fact that she's a wonderful neighbor. If there was a train track, and a cat was tied to it, and I was tied to it, and a train was coming, I can't really tell you for sure who she would go to first. I will say this, the sicker that cat is the less chance I have, okay? This was made clear to me growing up. No question about it. My sister and I know our place, and we've accepted. My dad knows his place. Grandkids, she'd grab them in a second. She'd grab grandkids in a second. I don't doubt it. But the rest of us really aren't sure when we get compared to poor, defenseless animals, okay? My mom said, so... When I realized that they put these tax strips on the top of their fence to keep my cat out, I ripped all of them off the fence. Of course. She said, "Of course I ripped them all off the fence and I took them home." She said, "Then the next day they came back and they left a gift basket on my doorstep, you know, for watering their plants." And so I brought that gift basket right back over and I put it on their front lawn, front porch with a pile of tax strips and a note. And it said, I can't, receive, I can't accept anything from you after what you did. And some other things that I'm not going to say, I think. <laughs> she said her neighbor, who was so nice and so sweet, and they were such good friends, sent her a text. And you know, you get one of these texts, it's really long, and you're like, oh boy. And they let her have it. They said, your cats have been ruining our yard. Our gardener says... That they maybe won't even come back and keep gardening because of all the stuff your cats are leaving in our yard. It's a nice way to say it, right? We're not, our vegetable garden's ruined and our fruit trees, we don't wanna eat the fruit off of them. It's so bad. And my mom's like, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, they're exaggerating it. They're totally exaggerating everything. I mean, wrap some mesh wire around your trees or something, put something around your garden bed, don't hurt my cats. And so she kind of laid out both sides of the story for me. And she was like, and then we left town, and now we're at your sister's, and I honestly don't even want to go back. And I just said, Mom, I guess the question is, do you regret it? And she said, oh, absolutely. She goes, oh, absolutely. I never should have said that. I never should have written them that note. I never should have... I mean, she did not regret pulling off the tax strips. It was pretty clear that she thought that was something that she should have done. But she said, you know, I should have just given their stuff to the goodwill. I was like, just take the gifts, you know? Like, they don't need to know that you still accepted their gifts. She's like, I didn't need to make a big deal about it, and I feel really badly about it, and now we're all mad at each other, and I don't know what to do. I'm sure none of us have ever been in this situation. It's not like after the first service, I talked to so many people, (laughs) who had been in a similar situation with their neighbor who were called to love, right? You see, there's something about us. There's something about the way that we work where whatever standard we use to determine a good person, the way people should behave, and, and I'll be generous here. I'll say, even if we all get to make our own rules, I'm not talking about my rules or someone else's rules or even the Bible's rules, okay? Everyone on this planet has their own way of defining the way a person should live and the way a person should behave and the way that people should treat each other. Now, here's the thing about us. Whatever you think people should be doing, you're not doing it. That's the thing about us. Whatever your standard is for rights you break it sometimes. You're guilty of the very things that you would expect of other people. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, I'm only trying to call attention to a fact and the fact that this year or this month or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior that we expect from other people. I don't think my mom's the only one guilty of this. Turns out that we're all guilty of this. You believe, you who believe that we should be open-minded, that we should be tolerant, and that we should be gracious towards others who believe and feel different things about us so that we can live in a pluralistic, diverse world. Well, you don't quite feel that way about those who have ideas that you consider to be bad ideas backwards ideas or progressive ideas or traditional old-fashioned ideas or scary new ideas you tell yourself well their ideas hurt people so i shouldn't and i can't tolerate those ideas you you who believe that people should be generous who shouldn't be greedy i mean how many problems in our world come from greed people putting their own desires over the needs of others well, you know what? You probably keep 95% of all the money that you make. And you probably keep 95% of the things that you have for yourself. And you call this generosity, not greed. You tell yourself, but I need what I have, and I'm not wealthy. But you don't, and you are. You believe, you who believe that people should be humble, who should think of others more than themselves like the idea of humility until your ambition comes into contact with it and your life goals come into contact with other people and their needs and those begin to trump everything else and you say, well, I need to love myself in this situation and I need to fight for myself in this situation and my needs matter and if I don't stand up for them, who will? And you're surprised to find yourself living in a world where everyone stands up for their own needs and not the needs of others. You who believe that people should be kind, and yet you are not. At least not when the kindness would matter the most, which is when it's the hardest to be kind. When the tax strips come out. When your gift basket is rejected. When people start putting on masks again. As we get closer to the election. When someone is mean to you or to your spouse, or to your child. Where's the kindness then? The kindness that the world needs, right? To be healed and be a better place. You believe it's wrong for someone to desire a person who is not their spouse, their person, and yet you do it yourself. You believe it's wrong for people to lash out in anger, and yet you do it yourself. In reality, the good things that we do, we take credit for those things. That's who I am. The bad things that we do, those are just mistakes. Those are moments of weakness. That's not enough sleep last night, right? You see, we call this sin. The Bible says that as much as we all want to write on signs, you are the problem, and go out and stand on a street corner, right? Because that's what every sign is saying. Every sign, whatever it says, is saying, I'm out here because you're the problem, right? Then in reality... Self-awareness would cause us, and some humility would cause us to go, I am the problem. And that's what we should be holding up. I mean, maybe we should just all go out and do that, right? As a church, just make signs that say, I'm the problem. The only problem is if we go out and do that, we'll just get rounded up and shipped off somewhere. And then in Oregon City, we'll be like, sweet, the problem's gone. I'm glad that they confessed. Now we can move on and keep living our wonderful lives. The truth is that when we recognize this, we recognize something about ourselves, and we don't know what to do with. Is that if we want justice, if we want things to be made right, that if we want wrongs to be uh, punished, if we want people to be able to move forward, we have to figure out how to do that in a world where we're guilty of whatever it is that we expect other people to do. And how do we do that? Sometimes we feel like we're doing a pretty good job, but other times we're a total mess because we realize just how broken we are. So if we want justice, if we want restoration, if we want redemption, if we want new life, and for everyone not to have to live under the condemnation of the stuff that we're doing that's messing this place up, how can that possibly happen? Someone has to pay for it. Someone does. I mean, the last person who gets to talk about forgiveness is the one who did something wrong. That's the person we don't want to hear from, right? If someone has totally wronged you and hurt you and messed things up in your life, and they come to you and go, so I wanted to talk to you about this concept called forgiveness, you'd probably be like, you're the last person who gets to talk to me about that. Because what you did was wrong and what you did hurt. God cares about justice. God cares about what is right. He cares about what is good. He cares that you've been wronged against, that you've endured pain and suffering at the hands of others. He cares that we live in a broken, fallen, messed up world. He cares because it's his creation and because we're his children. He cares in the same way that you care if someone hurts your child or causes something bad to happen to them. So what do we do, right? What do we do? The only way forward when we recognize that is this thing that the Bible calls repentance. And repentance is simply saying "Then fine, I will turn away from what I'm doing and I'll turn back to doing the right thing. Let's start over, let's go back, let's get a fresh start. I can do it better this time. I really mean it. Just give me another chance. Give me a chance I don't deserve, but give me another chance. The problem is that we can't just do that. You can't just go and start over. You can't just ignore what's happened. What, what, what would the world be like with no sense of justice? What would the world be like? Because if I do something wrong to you and I say I want to start over, I'm asking you to just absorb it, to just ignore it, to just take it on every time. And now that I don't have it, you do. And what do you do with it? The problem is that the very people who need to be able to do this can't do it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the same book. He says, the worse you are, the more you need it to repent, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he would not need it. The only person who has the right to say, I get to start over fresh today, is the person that doesn't need to start over to begin with. Paul explains the gospel this way. When he tells them that they need to go back to it, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to 12. Paul goes on to enumerate all the people that Jesus appeared to, hundreds of people, and then eventually Paul himself on the road to Damascus. So his explanation of the gospel that he brings them back to is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So uh, what it means by in accordance with the scriptures is that the Old Testament taught that like when someone did something wrong, there had to be a sacrifice made because Sin leads to death, and that's the only way that you can move forward. And so you you got an animal that was valuable, that was innocent, that hadn't done anything wrong, and you caused that animal to die for your sin, so that something could take the penalty of that sin. If you heap enough bad things onto a goat, does anybody know what it's called? A scapegoat, a scapegoat. and that's what it was—a scapegoat. Well, according to the scriptures, that had to happen every time, but it was insufficient, and it was never enough. It was never enough for us to truly be okay by God. These were animals. This was a symbol. This wasn't the same at all. And it certainly didn't undo what those people had done. Jesus, the Bible tells us, lived perfectly. He was the only one that didn't need to repent. He was the only one that didn't need a new start, a fresh start. And he ultimately was the one who sacrificed himself for us. That's the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel, simply put, is that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. That's it. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news. Gospel means good news. So the good news is that Jesus saves us from what's killing us. And we are a people who find life in Jesus. That's what it is. The gospel tells us that Jesus saved, so the question is who needs that message? Who needs that message? You see, for most of us, we understand the gospel in the church this way we would call it the ABCs of Christianity. We would say the gospel is the information that you need in order to become a Christian. And then once you become a Christian, you move past it. You move past the ABCs and you move on to all the other letters of the alphabet. But the truth is the gospel isn't the ABCs. It's the A to Z, right, of the Christian life. And even though most of us are probably in the habit of taking the gospel and putting it in our pocket. And then leaving it there until we meet a person who's not a Christian and then we pull it back out and we go, here's the good news of the gospel. The truth is, that's not really the only people who need it. Otherwise, why would Paul be talking to the church when he says this? So the first group that needs the gospel is, of course, obviously, people who haven't found life in Jesus. And the only way that we as a community can bring other people to a place where they find life in Jesus is if the message that Jesus saves is the same message we give again and again. How is someone to come and believe that they can find life in Jesus if they don't hear it from us every single time that we gather together? Every sermon, every Bible study, every prayer meeting. This news, life is found in Jesus, must permeate every thing that we do together. It must shape the way that we do things together so that the message that we bring to others is not a message of church is where life is found. Rules are where life is found. Self-discipline is where life is found. Freedom. Don't even worry about any of that stuff. Do whatever you want. God's bigger than all that stuff. He's forgiven you in Jesus. That's where life is found. Liberation is where life is found. No. The message that we bring to those that haven't yet found life in Jesus must always be that message first and foremost, not some other message that we've moved on to. This is why the gospel has to be at the center of everything that we say and everything that we do and even the way our church itself functions. Who else needs the gospel? Paul says... I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So hold fast is like tying something up and binding it. For some reason, I think of like a turkey or a chicken that you're cooking and you tie string around it, Right? I could say something like tying up your child so that they can't move, but that would, that would be weird, and that would make you think that that's something I've done, which I have never done or ever even thought about or wanted to do at all. <laughs> but think about that. Something being bound up, being restricted. He says the message of the gospel should restrict you. It should bind, you should bind yourself up in it and don't go outside of it, which is what we want to do. You received this thing at one point. You received it. Romans tells us the righteousness of God is, um, righteousness of God is this thing that comes from the outside of us to us. We don't achieve righteousness. We don't become, we don't act out righteousness. We don't behave righteousness. No, we receive righteousness. We receive the gospel And then he says, you stand on it. So today, the day that I wake up, that I say I'm gonna live this life today, if I'm not standing on the gospel, that means I'm standing on something else. If I'm not standing on the news that Jesus is the reason I have life, I'm standing on something else. Most of us were standing on, I am where life is found, right? Life is found in what I do, not in Jesus and who he is. And he says, you'll continue being saved in this thing. And if you see it that way, And if you go back to the gospel again and again, and every day, constantly, in every situation, then it will bind you up in a good way. It will bind you up in a way that is ultimately safe. So he says that you hold fast to this thing, and so that's the other people who need the gospel. The other people who need it are people who need to hold fast to it. And who are those people? Those are Christians. People who have received it, now what do they do? They hold fast to the gospel. And believe it or not, that's a very hard thing to do. It is. It's a very hard thing to do. Why is it hard to hold fast to the gospel? Because we drift from it. We have this tendency to drift away from it. Also, because the Bible describes the gospel as actually a pretty fragile message. It describes it as something that can easily be perverted or distorted, is what Scripture tells us. We see it happen in a variety of extremes. Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. He says, you foolish Galatians. Yikes, right? I do not want Paul to write that to us in a letter. If I got a letter from Paul and I opened it and it said that, I'd just close it and be like, no, we didn't get a letter from Paul. Sorry, guys. Maybe next time. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. But Paul says, you foolish Galatians. Why? Because it turns out that church had added things to the gospel. They're like, the gospel's good. It's great. It's awesome. We don't want to leave it. But just add these other things in. That way we know we mean it. We believe it for real. You can tell by how we live, you can tell by what we do, and that's good. Not good, says Paul. Stop adding things to it, stop drifting. Or we pervert the gospel by taking things away from it. We remove things like repentance, the fact that we are sinners, the fact that we need Jesus and we use it as a way to just live however we want and say, God's so big and we're so small and the gospel says he doesn't care. And, you know, Paul writes about that to the church in Corinth. He's like, what are you guys doing? I mean, when I look at the way you guys are living your lives, it's clear that like the gospel doesn't seem to be like motivating you. It doesn't seem to be the thing you're standing in. You're standing in all these other things that honestly look exactly like what the outside world is standing in. We drift from the gospel so easily, which is why every time that we gather together, not just for those outside the walls of the church or those who haven't received it yet, every time we gather together for our own sake, we have to go back to it. In every sermon, in every Bible study, in every prayer meeting, in any conversation that we can think of it. I'll be honest, I've had times that friends have asked me, what does the gospel have to say about this? And it's been infuriating. I'm like, I don't want to talk about that right now. I mean, that's fine. You obviously don't know what to say, so just don't say anything. Only to realize, like, this is the only question that I need to be answering right now. That when I'm like racked with anxiety, thinking that like I'm dying from some disease that I made up in my head and, 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 I, and I, it's consuming my whole life and all I want is someone to tell me like, I don't know, I don't even know what I wanted to tell me. I just wanted to make me feel better. And they say, what does the gospel have to say about this? This feels like the last thing I want to hear sometimes. But it's the only thing that I really can hear in that moment. The only thing I can really stand on. I think there's, um, there's, kind of two reasons why we really struggle to hold fast to the gospel. I really do. I think uh, this question of, like, why do we still need the gospel, right? Like, because when we say the gospel is this message, um, and here's who needs the gospel, the natural question is, why do they need it? Well, it's easy for us to understand why an unchristian person would need the gospel because they need to find life in Jesus and you cannot find it anywhere else. But why do we still need it who are walking in Jesus now, who are walking in the spirit now, who are children of God? Why do we still need this message over and over again? I think there's um, it's because um, of our ability to drift away from it, like I said. And I think... Something that I've seen a lot in, in the lives of Christians in my own life that makes this very easy for us is that there are two things that we desire very strongly, and they're kind of the opposite of the gospel. One is we desire independence, and the gospel is all about being dependent. Who doesn't love the idea of being a dependent adult? right? Like, like the gospel is basically God's way of saying, nice try on your own, move back in, and I'm going to take care of you. Yeah, we love that, right? That feels like a real success in our lives. The gospel is all about dependence on Jesus in order to have life at all. Scripture talks about walking in the spirit, the life of the spirit. That's how you grow as a Christian, You don't force yourself to have the fruit of the Spirit. They grow naturally and they develop. How? By you walking in the Spirit. That's the Christian life. Well, what does that look like? Walking by the Spirit, walking with Jesus, remaining in Jesus. These are all things that involve us being dependent on something else. We do not like being dependent. And so what happens is we become dependent in the beginning, and then we believe that God wants us to be independent. We believe that we still spend much of our life trying as hard as we can to be doing things on our own, thinking that's what God really wants from me. That's what maturity looks like. But the truth is, when you're 90 years old and you're looking at death, you should be depending on Jesus as much that day as you did the first day that you met him. You should be. We don't think of it that way. Because we're an independent people. We're an independent culture. I think the other thing that makes this very hard for us to stay focused on the gospel and not drift away from it, apart from this need for independence, is I think we just love content. Content, content, content. And I think that we get really bored with the same message over and over again. I mean, I, I think that sounds crass, but I think that's, the big, that's a big problem for us. We want new ideas. We want new things to think about. We want new things to figure out, right? We want to be wowed. We want to be, uh, have our curiosity fulfilled. And I think that we look at the gospel as old news, something that we get it. I'm, I figured it out. I got it. That's fine. But I want something new. I want something stimulating. I want something different. And in our desire for that, we think it's okay to move away from this thing. That's part of what growing up means too, maybe. I don't think that's true. I think the gospel is kind of like saying, I love you to people in your family. You say it over and over and over again. You say it when you're angry. You say it when you're happy. You say it in the good times. You say it in the bad times. You say, I love you over and over and over again. And the idea is that people would get that you love them. That's it. It's the same three words, but you say them as often as you can. You say them in all the different circumstances and situations, and your hope is that the people that you love would actually believe that you love them. They may know the facts. They may know that you say those words, but do they really believe it and feel it? They will if we continue to say it again and again. The problem is when we go, they know I love them. You know I love you. Why do I have to keep saying it? There are idols in our lives that we kind of want to look to instead of Jesus to save us. We want to look to ourselves and we want to look to these things. And the good news is that the gospel tells us again and again that life is only found in Jesus. I was talking with a friend recently who attended Bible college, who was in full-time ministry, and the ministry that they were in involved them evangelizing to people, sharing the gospel with people who didn't yet know it. And they were telling me that it was only recently that they felt that for the first time in their lives, they truly, fully grasped how much they needed Jesus. They said, I don't know what to do with that. Does it mean I wasn't a Christian? And no, that's not what it means. The good news is that God is our Father, and he loves us. And because he loves us, he says, I'm going to bring you to a place Where you will see the need to depend on me. Now that might be because you are in in sin. It may be that you're doing things that are wrong, not that God made happen, not that God tempted you with, but the enemy will meet you in that sin in the pit, and they will say, the enemy, he will say, he will say, You're done. You're done. The only way forward is to give up or to stop caring about good altogether. And know that you're as far from God as a person can be and you should never get back to him. What God says when he meets you in that place, and he will meet you in that place, is he says, depend on me. And what you might realize is for the first time in your life, you really have to. We can know the gospel. We can hear it growing up. We can hear it in a loving home. We can hear it in our church. We can share it with other people. And have God bring us to a place even later in life where we lose control, where things fall apart, and through the circumstances that we're in, where we suffer and we're in pain, we go, I am not in control. I was using my faith to control everything around me. Even while while saying other people do that, but I don't do that, I was doing it. And God showed me, you're not in control. Do you trust in me? Do you trust that life is found in Jesus? I was talking with the with woman in the first service who was here and was saying um, that her husband is getting, as he's getting older, his body's breaking down more and more and it's consuming more of their entire life. And she wasn't complaining about it at all. She was just saying, it's a real roller coaster. Some days I think I'm going to have him with me um, for a while. Some days I think like, I don't know if he's going home to be with the Lord soon. But it's, hard to, to see that and to experience the pain of that. And she was saying that she was grateful that she was able to come to church today, just able to be here. And, and as I was talking with her before the service, I was thinking to myself, good, you get to hear the gospel today. You get to hear the gospel, something that you already heard, something that you feel like you already know. Why? Because the gospel tells you that there will be restoration The gospel tells you that there will be renewal of all things. The gospel tells you that as low as you feel right now and as much as your life feels like it's falling apart and is a mess, Jesus is meeting you right there, right now. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news is that our God has a stockpile of grace that he is just like shoveling out to us. And his desire is that we would turn to him and say, God, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. We don't want to be in that place. We don't want to be in that position. We love to see, I mean, I think we'd like to see other people in that position, you know. Sure, that'd be great, but not me. I don't need it. I'm fine on my own. Ours is a God who meets us daily in our brokenness and he tells us to trust in him. This morning, we're going to take communion together. And as we do that, Uh, We do this because Jesus told his disciples when they were um, with him in the upper room before he was arrested and crucified. He said to them, um, as you eat this bread, they were eating a meal together, I want you to eat this bread in remembrance of my flesh which was broken for you.